Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. So we have this entire customer base who's never really experienced a high-quality rewards program. What if we could give them one and build one? And so we basically said is when we were working on the economics of the business, what if we just give customers the interchange back? What if we just basically took all the interchange we generate, we keep the subscription fees, we get that interchange back to the customer to drive retention and push the swipes and get people to actually use our product and get that high quality, build that high quality credit, and then incentivize and reward them along the way. And so we offer about 1% back in terms of points of redeemable value. So you know, I spend $100, I get basically about a dollar back in value of points. And then when I go to our store where the prices are not inflated, I can then go buy those products and get things like AirPods or gift cards or whatever it may be. And give our customer that really high quality sort of Amex like rewards experience for someone who's never really experienced it. That was Extra CEO Max Hellerstein, and he is my special guest on this episode, episode 210 of the Leaders in Payments podcast. And I'm your host, Greg Myers. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to make you aware of some opportunities we have here at the Leaders in Payments podcast. We have various sponsorship opportunities, including our upcoming Diversity and Inclusion Month in March. We're also launching a new series of podcasts called The Pulse of Payments, where we'll focus specifically on a topic for an entire month. For example, we'll cover embedded finance, open banking, cross-border payments, and more. And finally, if you've ever thought about starting your own business podcast, please reach out. We're B2B podcasting experts as well and can help you launch and market your very own podcast. For more information on any of these opportunities, please contact me directly at greg at leadersinpayments.com. And now back to the show. Max is the CEO of Extra. Extra is the first ever debit card that allows consumers to build their credit history with every single swipe. The company generates revenue based on a subscription fee, and the interchange on every transaction is then given back to the customer to incentivize them with rewards and select offerings. Max and I go on to talk about his journey to the CEO role, his strategy for getting obsessed, and where he sees the industry going in the next two to three years as it relates to consolidation, bundling, and the potential for one universal rail. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Max. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's dive in and we'll circle back to your professional career in just a minute. But just to get us started, could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that? Sure. My name is Max Hellerstein. I'm the CEO of Extra. I've been an entrepreneur for the last 12 years of my life, Uh, originally from New York City. Didn't go to college, but I went to the high school of fashion industries. Actually, I went to Brooklyn College for about two weeks. <laughs> uh, moved out to Los Angeles about five, six years ago. And uh, I'm here now in sunny Los Angeles. Awesome. Well, let's discuss the company Extra. So tell us what Extra does. So Extra is the first debit card that allows you to build your credit history with every single swipe. Much like a credit card or much like another secured or unsecured credit product, we allow you to basically build credit history that reports to the bureaus, earn rewards with every swipe, and get access to really cool rewards and items for using sensible payment behavior on your debit card. Okay. And you launched this company, what, three years ago? We launched about three years ago. We were in research and development for like six or seven months and then launched in at the end of 2020. So, you know, we've been in market now 
sorry, my math precedes me here, about two and a half years. But the company's been around for about three. Okay, okay. And what was it like launching a company during the COVID crisis? It was wonderful and challenging at the same time. Great time to focus, you know, at home all day. Actually, you know, at the time I was living with my co-founder or one of my co-founders. And so we were just, you know, every single day, kind of nine to nine working because there really wasn't much else to do. That also being said, extremely terrifying and fearful to say, even going outside and going to do things that we took for granted almost as normal were impossible or difficult. I remember the first time sitting at a restaurant again indoors with all my friends and just saying, wow, I forgot what this felt like. And so now I think very much crystallized by the focus and discipline of that time, but equally as appreciative of the moments I get to share with people in real life now. Well, I think to help people understand kind of the the value prop in the product, maybe walk us through sort of what is the user experience like? Like what are the steps they go through to get an extra card and then to use it and then to get the value from it? Yeah, so it's pretty simple. Basically, users go on our website or members go on our website at www.extra.app. They go through our uh, sign-up flow and we collect some basic KYC information. And the thing that's different about us and most other kind of credit building products is we don't require you to have any existing credit at all. You can basically sign up for our product with just a cash balance that's sufficient for a subscription and meets a few other areas of criteria that are not quite taxing and are not, are not looking at sort of seven years of history in order to underwrite you. Uh, you basically go onto our website. Once you tell them that information, you connect your bank account by a Plaid. There's over 11,000 bank accounts on the Plaid network. Um, I'm sure your listeners are very aware of, of Plaid and what they do. And when they log in with their, with their bank credentials, we do a quick check to just make sure they have enough for the subscription. They don't have too many overdrafts. And we just make sure that they're going to have a long-term successful experience with Extra. From there, we underwrite them to a spending limit or spend power is what we call it to the amount in their connected account up into a certain cap. From there, we approve that customer within about five minutes. The customer then gets a card shipped to them once they've been approved. And from there, they start, they get their card, they activate their card. We offer them both a virtual and a physical card, start swiping. And then as soon as they start swiping the card, we basically put them on a 30 day clock for every transaction that they swipe. From there, though, most of our customers opt into paying the next business day. And when they pay the next business day or 30 business days or any time after that swipe, we start furnishing that data to the bureaus. And we take real-time balance sheet risk on those customers where we have real losses. We incur all of the same traditional issues and headaches of traditional credit products, all designed around getting customers to pay more frequently, not less. Okay. And can you you talk about the, the growth? Because I know you guys have seen some pretty good growth over the last two and a half years. Yeah. So right now we have about 120,000 customers on the platform, all which are subscribers. So our product is not free. Our customers pay a subscription. So we don't have any free users on our platform. And that 120,000 customer growth has just been basically been (laughs) our entire focus and our entire discipline of just growing a massive customer base and offering more high quality credit to more consumers every single day. Yeah. Can you touch on the reward side a little bit? Yeah. So I think what what was really interesting is when we were starting to develop this product, we thought a lot about, you know, what would actually make a debit card more appealing? I mean, obviously the ability to build credit is something that had not really existed in the category before. But similarly, rewards have been quite scarce in debit. Now, there have been rewards associated to checking accounts. There are like bonuses and deals at your local merchants and vendors. But what didn't exist was sort of the Amex style experience of rewards, which is I get these points. These points have value to me. I accumulate these points and then I go and redeem things like travel and other like cool items in the store that, you know, in some cases are things we go and admire and chase. And others are just the amount that just build up in the background and we realize we have them and we're excited. But the thing is that this just hasn't existed in debit. 
And so we have this entire customer base who's never really experienced a high quality rewards program. What if we could give them one and build one? And so we basically said is when we were working on the economics of the business, what if we just give customers the interchange back? What if we just basically took all the interchange we generate, we keep the subscription fees, we get that interchange back to the customer to drive retention and push the swipes and get people to actually use our product and get that high quality, build that high quality credit, and then incentivize and reward them along the way. And so we offer about 1% back in terms of points of redeemable value. So, you know, I spend $100, I get basically about a dollar back in value of points. And then when I go to our store where the prices are not inflated, I can then go buy those products and get things like AirPods or gift cards or whatever it may be and give our customer that really high quality sort of Amex-like rewards experience for someone who's never really experienced it before. Okay. And as you're probably aware, the payments or fintech industry, there's a lot of go-to-market strategy around partners. Do you work with partners or is this more of a, a straight direct-to-consumer from extra to the consumer? So originally, our thesis was very much direct. We focused all on direct marketing. We really didn't do a ton of partnerships because we felt like we wanted to own the customer relationship from first to last click. That being said, after doing a lot more research and looking at the market, we are very much in market with partners now. We're working with a lot of the sort of smaller marketplaces where you can basically look between different credit cards and other products to decide between extra or not. We're on some of the uh, financial wellness blogs, and we're now becoming sort of the recommended go-to rebuilder or starting builder product, particularly for consumers with a 550 or 600 credit score. And so I think we're a lot more open to working with partners now. Actually, if anyone here is listening and runs a payments like recommendation engine, we'd love to talk to you. We think that we are an excellent sort of turn down affiliate cross-sell partner and, and are actively looking for new partners today. Okay. And I assume that your model is the revenues just generated on the subscription fees. Yeah, so we do collect interchange, but we basically just give that back to the customer. I have a pretty firm view on make the subscription where your margin is going to be. And then you use the interchange really as the carrot to get consumers to re or members to really keep using the product because it's just a really powerful way to keep people motivated, as we've seen with some of the player or the credit card players. Right, right. And you, you mentioned something a minute ago about financial wellness. And I think we talked about this offline, but, you know, we have, and, and I think our listeners will, will know this, but we have a financial inclusion month every year. Can you kind of talk about that credit building and, and that aspect of it? I mean, I think that's incredibly important that we give visibility to that, that what companies in payments and fintech are doing. So maybe talk about your view on, on that and then kind of what the company's doing to help. Yeah. So really for like the last 40, 50 years, credit has been built really one of a few ways. You get a credit card, you take out a loan, you adopt or inherit whatever your family or your parents' credit score is. And the system is not really made for everybody to just participate. The on-ramps are just not really that strong. Particularly if you don't have that financial literacy, you weren't raised with it or you weren't surrounded by it growing up. And so what we basically have done is figured out a way is how do we make credit building effectively autonomous so it works in the background for consumers, make it easy and work within their existing lifestyle and not require you to have to go read a bunch of complicated literature or sign a bunch of really like really difficult to understand documents and pay a bunch of exorbitant fees for it. What if we just made it super simple? And so like our entire business is make it really frictionless to get on the credit on-ramp, go learn about it while you're getting on that on-ramp, provide that literacy in our mobile app. We do that today in our experience tab where we have everything from information about what a credit score even is in through how can I mess it up? What do I need to go to go right? And then what do I need to do to basically build high quality credit over the long term? It's not just about quick fix. It's how do I set myself up so that when I go and get my mortgage, I can think about a refi later on and I can have a score that would support that. 
or I get the car that I want, the auto trade I want that I can actually afford. So this is sort of our style and our approach as opposed to credit at all costs, boost the score, nothing else matters. It's how do I build high quality, deep credit history such that I end up being able to get told yes on really high quality products later on, especially when I need them most. Because what we all know is that credit is really valuable when we need it the most. And it's extremely difficult to get when we need it the most. So you want to have it before that happens. So I would almost argue that what we find is that we want to be the, we are giving you the guide. We don't want to catch you when it's sort of too late. We want to show you the way to give you that journey. And if you think about the market right now, there's very few companies that actually have that incentive to do so. We are one of very few. And that is because we actually encourage our customer to pay more frequently, make more payments on time, and we don't charge interest. And so our entire business is around how do we say yes more often? How do we take very adequate risk on consumers and give them a shot on goal to prove to our other subsequent lenders later down the line that these consumers are just as good as the others? They are just approaching a bit different of a path, and they may have an adverse impact on, on the way that they got to that score. And we're here to help support them and guide them in the right direction. Okay. And are you just in the U.S. right now? Today, we're only in the U.S., yes. But lots of interest in expanding for international folks who want to build U.S. credit history. And we are also for folks 18 and up. So unfortunately, anybody under 18 or parents listening with kids, we are working on a solution to be able to offer credit building for folks at all ages a sustainable way. Okay. And what would you say differentiates your company from your competitors out there? So what we've basically found is that the real way to win here is to figure out how to say yes more often, effectively take more risk, but make, take smart risk on consumers and really, really resolve the, the most painful points of the credit onboarding experience. So that's things like the credit check. That's things like the quality of, of the product you're offering. Like, are you actually giving folks the ability to go and spend the money that they've earned? Or are you creating this like very strange fixed experience that is more complicated than helpful? And then I think most importantly, how do you make folks feel like they're not like a, they're getting the experience much like that of, you know, some of the highest quality credit products out there. So you offer really good customer support. Like I'm not talking about robots, like actual people on the other end who can answer hard and complicated questions. Things like our reward store, where the items are not just like little gift cards. They're like actually high quality products that people want to aspire to achieve and purchase. I think that there's this sort of knack that it's like, oh, just give people this, this mousetrap. I don't like the mousetrap analogy. I'm here to set up folks for long-term success. And that's where the alpha will be for our business. And I think what you'll find is that Right now in the market, there's a lot of either fly-by-night stuff or you have to go and inherit an entire banking relationship. We actually believe that it should just be as easy as bolting on a Chrome extension. And I think that's been our edge for a long time. And folks still haven't really built products that way because I think that there's this idea that they need to own a, a much different relationship than I think is actually necessary. And so I think we're just different in that we're doing less, but really focused on the less that we do. Yeah. So do you see consumers, like when they sign up, they use it just a little bit and then that kind of grows over time? Yeah. So what we've found is that pretty much within the first 30, 60 days, we have that point had furnished one or two credit cycles for the customer. And the customers kind of made the decision whether or not they're going to go down this path. And then from there, we can see if customers stay for another year, two years, and in some of our oldest cohorts, two and a half to three years, because they're building that long-term credit history. And it's not like extra is just a stepping stone. Sure, there are customers who get an extra debit card and then move on to a credit card and graduate a few months later. But then there's others that really like our product and what it does. And so we kind of are here for sometimes a short time for a customer, sometimes a long time for a customer. But either way, when we start furnishing the customer's credit, we start to see that there can be anywhere from a 48 to a 79 point increase, depending on where they are in their journey. 48 points or 79 points for a rebuilder is a massive leg up in their ability to go get a product that otherwise would have never been possible for them. 
And that's things like you and I might take for granted, like getting approved for an apartment, getting approved for an auto trade, getting a mortgage on a house, things that maybe if you have a sufficient level of how payments work, you probably understand how the credit system works. It just is something that is so non-existent and is a gap of knowledge that's just not taught in schools. And so we're making up for a lot of that lost time with our customer and they really respect and appreciate that and build a long-term relationship with us to do, to do just that. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Where do you think the, and I use payments industry in kind of quotes, but definitely your answer can be based on kind of the segment or niche that you fit in. But where do you see that going in the next, say, two to three years? Like sort of the, just to clarify, the kind of credit space or you mean just payments as a whole? Well, I mean, I think both would make sense, but sort of whatever aspect of it that you feel is going to affect your business in the long term. My observation has been, it's really interesting that, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this, in America, you've got like ACH, you've got Zelle, you've got this sort of FedNow product that's coming. We have RTP. There's all these sort of fancy acronyms for how we move money around. And I think what's so interesting is that that is still so fragmented. The ways in which we accept payments and all different folks accept payments, maybe with like sort of the, the, the exception of the fact that you know, credit cards and, and debit cards are the main rail. There's so many other rails around that. And what I'm really curious about, what I think a lot about is like, what does the consolidation of payments look like? Does this all just end up on one rail, right? To some degree, you know, we went from bartering to cash and cash was the rail until somebody came up with a second rail. And now we've got like six rails. <laughs> and so I just wonder, like, or we went from unbundling. Now there's all these different kinds of payments. And I haven't even gotten into crypto, right? We haven't even talked about crypto yet, but you've got all those rails of payments. And so where does this all end up? Does this just end up back in one? And so I sort of think of things in cycles, unbundling and then rebundling. And I would wonder, I think it would be interesting to think about the fact that we probably are at peak unbundle now. Maybe I could be wrong about that. But do we get back to bundle? And does that happen in 3, 15, 20 years? Who knows? But I think that whatever it is, I think directionally we are, we are going to go back to bundling of payments. I think it's going to go back down to a few networks, a few rails, maybe two or three. And those just continue to be the sort of lion's share of how we think about money movement with a lot of folks who just cannot get that adoption because payments need that mass volume to work. Yeah, and you mentioned it. So I'm going to ask, how do you think crypto fits into all this? I think crypto replaces a lot of the value of cash. And what I mean by that is everything from micropayments and tips in through those moments when you need to exchange currency that are just offhand. Back in the day, I used to go to Peter Luger Steakhouse in Williamsburg. And if you didn't have a reservation, you, there was somebody who would usually skip your the line over you and hand the maitre d' a $20 bill and they'd get seated right away. You kind of wondered like, wow, that money stuff is powerful, huh? And I guess what I think about is like, does that then happen in crypto where you sort of get this, you know, those moments where cash can be helpful and those little moments where micropayments are important that you're not going to pull a credit card out and a square reader on. So I think that, you know, I think that for these like very small payments where the fees are nominal and the ability to sort of have zero identity or faceless identity to it is going to be important. I don't think people want to just pull a phone out and wire and send money to each other, even on Zelle. I think it's a fine product, but that is just going to get way smoother. I think it's going to be like taps instead of like inputs. And so when that happens, I think crypto will play a major role in that. I also think that, you know, if you think about a borderless world, globalization, transfer-wise, massive payments business, a lot of fees, right? You got to send money across the world. It's expensive. You've got family at home. Crypto addresses a lot of that. And so I just think that there's a ton of opportunity. And like, how do you just make money move like water in a world where we are now totally globalized and we don't have that ability to have that first touch access, as well as just the, the, the wonderful parts of cash that I think folks also take for granted. And we don't, as cash starts to phase out, we will start to miss a lot more. Sure, sure. Are there macro things going on 
inflation as an example that that you feel like affect your customer base or even you know you kind of mentioned the credit side are there macro things going on there that that you guys keep a, an eye on that you want to touch on so I can speak for you know the extra customer base and you know the data set we have which is, is substantial right about 120,000 customers who are very much active you know using our product and we, we observe a lot of payment data around and I think that my observation is that in a weird way we grew during you know our, our peak of our growth grew during a zero interest rate environment where money was effectively free. And actually, our competitors became all of the high quality credit cards that could lower their bar for underwriting, because in theory, they could take more risk and more balance sheet risk on consumers and issue more credit to customers. And so we were actually competing our ads and our acquisition efforts were competing with high quality credit cards that were willing to lower their bar. Conversely, though, when, when you see interest rates go up, the belt tightens because the cost of capital is more expensive. And so the losses hurt more for the large lenders. And so what that means is the large lenders will literally start closing lines on consumers. It's happened before. This happened in 2008, 2010. They start shortening lines on consumers. They start closing lines on consumers and just firing customers left and right, as well as saying no to more consumers at the top of the funnel. And so for that reason, those consumers that otherwise would have been told yes and are now told no, told no can look for products without realizing it that are not going to be reliant on that cost of capital to be told yes. Where products like us come into the vault is... Those customers, that swath of customers that otherwise would have been told yes and is now being told no, can still come to extra and be told yes. Because we're incentivized to get paid more frequently, not less, because we don't charge interest, we feel very strongly that when there's impact macro conditions, products like ours really do thrive because we're a safe harbor for consumers who still need to build their credit, need to find a place to do it. It's not like people are going to stop moving into apartments, buying cars and homes that are going to need credit and financing to be able to do so. And they can go and get that high quality credit with that sensible behavior with us. And so we're insurance when you don't need it, and we're super helpful when you do. So what I would say is I'm very bullish and optimistic of the macro environment for extra. I'm obviously for humanity. I'm more concerned because I think people have gotten really comfortable with money over a really long period of time. And I think that we're in a glut, and that glut is we're having a come down period off of that glut now. We're seeing this in our spend. We're seeing this in overall customer performance. There's just less money going around with the consumer. I think the consumer is just much more aware now than they were in 2008. Or at least we have reason to believe that they are. We'll see if that's actually true. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. All right, well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you. So tell us about your journey to your role there as the CEO at Extra. So, you know, I am very much one of those kind of people who I was okay in school. I was not accelerant. I love to learn, a lifelong learner, and continue to love to learn. And I'm very obsessed with this idea that being sort of relentlessly curious is a really large feature that. I think has powered and empowered a lot of the entrepreneurship. And the beauty of my job is that when I get excited about something, then I get to go get five or 10 other people excited. And then they go get another five or 10 people excited. And that, that the raw of compounding happens and eventually a customer gets our card. So my job here is to be, you know, figure out a mission, get obsessed with it. In the case of extra, it's like, how do we help hundreds of millions of people who are on the credit rail just have a bit of an easier solution? And even if you were to say, hey, Max, you're never going to get hundreds of millions of customers, to have the idea that we are an open door for consumers to build credit at any level is just such an exhilarating feeling. And so I'm just a moonshot kind of person who's running to build a really big company that can support and help a ton of people while being incentivized to generate subscription fees and build a high quality business. You know, I think like Elon Musk, you love him or hate him, but the Tesla as a, as a business, as a car, and it's this idea that we can actually drive a high quality car that's good for the environment, you know, asterisk to those who are going to question whether it's good for the environment or not, but <laughs> presumably an electric car is better for the environment than not. And it actually just helps a ton of people along the way while building a great business. 
And so like, I don't know, I think that for me, what gets me fired up is how do you get that middle Venn diagram of helping people, building high quality businesses and running at it? I am not the kind of person who is going to win on my pedigree. I'm not the guy who on paper makes sense. If you look at my background, I ran a pizza company. And then after that, I ran a sort of QVC for Gen Z company. I did not have any business in anything doing finance or payments or financial services or payments and somehow stumbled my way in here. But I really believe that a lot of this is just get really obsessed with a problem, go figure out all the ways to tackle and address that problem, and then go get a bunch of really smart people excited around you who equally want to solve that problem with you. And if they don't even understand the size of it, show them the way because amazing things end up happening that way. And so my mantra is more with anything, like just identify really big, hard and meaningful problems and go solve them with the, with whatever resources you can. Yeah. And I, I grew up uh, very humble beginnings. Both parents are artists, didn't grow up around payments experts. Wasn't like they just really two really big, hard entrepreneurs who one was an architect, one's a photographer, and they just love the idea of building things and having relentless curiosity in their ideas. And so I think I'm just, a, I'm a product of that. And I, I don't know what else I really am. Aside from that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love that. That's, that's awesome. So what are, what are some things you're passionate about? So maybe one work-related passion and one personal passion. So work-related passion, I really love solving hard problems. And then I love showing people how to solve them. I, I think that inherently I love to teach in a weird way. I love to like go find the problem, show people how we can solve it. And then just, again, bum rush or almost sort of like become obsessed with being sort of winner take all of that problem. I am very competitive and this bleeds into my personal life in a way where, you know, I love the idea and and not sort of aggressive competitive. I just love the idea of being sort of the silent winner where you really work in private. You basically build this massive thing and then people notice and they're like, oh my God, how did that get so big? Like, I love that feeling. I don't like to do the sort of like, look at how big we're going to be. I like the feeling of like, look at what we've done here and how incredible this is and look where we're headed. I think that there's this idea of sort of slope versus y-intercept. I love the idea of slope. I love the idea of look at this progress and look where we're headed. Sort of that horizon is a really exciting thing to me. And then personally, I love the journey of not only my entrepreneurship, but leading into things I like to do in my, in my own time. And, and so very into fitness. Recently, I've been really into sort of like trying to hack my diet, do a little bit of biohacking. I've been having a lot of fun recently reading about just all of these new, new ways and tactics, not even about longevity, but just like how do you wake up feeling great every day? Really big advocate and proponent of high quality sleep. I got an excellent night of sleep last night, so hopefully I'm doing okay today. And really just care a lot about health and and just feeling really good in the body that I'm in because being an entrepreneur, being a CEO at any level, whether it's you're a pre-seed company or you're a public business, like you just, it's blood, sweat and tears. And you've got to be emotionally and mentally fit for that. And if you're not, you will just, I've seen it happen. You will burn out. So I think the personal and professional life ends up bleeding over a lot. Work-life balance is something I, I don't know if it actually exists in my life, but I think they sort of complement each other. And, and so, I don't know, between fitness and, and friends and, and just being really passionate about work, that's kind of like, you know, everything else is just details. Right, right, right. Well, the next question, I, I think it'll, I love to ask the question just because I think everyone brings their own kind of unique experience. And obviously yours, to your point, isn't a payments background. It's more entrepreneurial and passionate about building things. So when I started in payments a long time ago, there was the word fintech didn't exist. And, you know, it it was debit and credit. And now there's so much more and there's been so much money invested in payments and fintech. It's become an industry that people are interested in kind of building a career around or at least starting a career in the industry. So curious, your advice to someone who's just coming into the industry, what would you tell them to do to be successful? Really good question. Gosh, I don't know where to even, there's like, that's a hard question, actually. Okay. 
my immediate, I like to kind of go off of like where my gut goes in that. So I'll give you where my, my gut is at. In my view, the wonderful thing about having very little payments in fintech experience is you can become really wide-eyed and learn at whatever, whatever is actually happening in that moment. You don't bring this sort of book of, well, this is how so-and-so used to do it. You get to really write your own rules. Right. The problem with writing your own rules is that means you're also learning on the job. And, you know, I think that there's, you know, someone once told me that the only person learning on the job should be you. In other words, it's sort of a reflection on how you hire and surround yourself with, with folks. But in short, I think that the beauty of, I, I would rather take the upside case of wide-eyed and I need to go learn a bunch and become obsessed than here are all my past experiences that need to be this sort of perfect answer or this precise answer of how business needs to get built in this, in this modern time. But the technology moves faster than that thought. And so what I would say is, you know, I think for folks looking at getting into payments or financial services, identify really high quality partners early on who have done this and done this at scale. Talk to them, allow them to prescribe you their version of the world, but remember that they're not going to have 100% of the perfect answer. So collecting that sort of combination of feedback and advice across consumer, across financial services, or across any of the adjacent industries to the thing you want to do. And then looking at the logos and the names of the folks they work with, are those companies you want to be in good company with? Even if they're competitors, right? These financial service businesses are all sort of operating off of the same rule set with slightly different ways that they approach and get there, but they're all working within a lot of the same economics. And so what you should look for is what are these players doing and why are they partnering this way? And what does that mean for my business? It really is. It, it's not the same level of competition and fierceness of secrecy that you find in other industries. Like I'm not worried about industry secrets with these partners. It's much more about oh, do these folks have high quality financial services businesses that have run really high quality compliance programs and make sure that they are in market selling a product that truly has alpha. And they're not just using the same 10 poles that every one of these players and service providers can use. Again, there's very hard little differentiation in these things. And so really being in good company is important. And then I think the next thing that I would add is that really high quality compliance and compliance advice early on is important. It's actually not optional. Getting really good folks around the table who you trust to be your leader in sort of legal risk decision-making and compliance decision-making is not optional. You will get shut down. You will have problems. You will, you will be out of business if you are not working alongside high-quality compliance leadership and decision-making. And so what you really don't want is to be early, early on and not be able to actually launch your product because you just didn't ask the right compliance folks and the right legal folks questions about how to get to market in a way that will make sure that you are protected and covered in the event you have a problem. So I think that like just really high quality feedback and advisory from good legal and compliance folks who have done this at modern fintechs that have scaled is a non-optional. I would do that as early as possible. Yeah, I think all of that is is very, very good advice. So Max, we've covered a lot of ground on the company, what you do, the value you bring to the market, kind of where everything is heading, a little bit about you and your background. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, I, I would love to hit back on that point, though, that around sort of partnerships and, and folks listening. You know, if, if you're in payments and you're in financial services and you either run a product or are partnering with other products and you're in the process of looking for either sending a lot of customers you can't underwrite or want to offer financial literacy or credit literacy to your customer base, you know, Extra is very much actively looking to speak to those folks and provide those services. So, you know, we're at www.extra.app. We, we're looking to help millions of people build and get access to high quality credit. And we'd love to work with you and hear from you. Uh, and I'm Max at Extra.app if anybody wants to reach out. Okay. Well, Max, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know your time is very valuable, so I want to be sensitive to that. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time. Absolutely. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. 
Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 